We're going to continue today on the Minor Prophets. And if you're wondering, oh boy, here we go, he's just starting, and we're going to cover a whole book. You're right. Fortunately, it's only three chapters. And I'm not going to try to do a a verse-by-verse exegesis. That's not the goal of this this, uh, whole series this summer. The real goal is, if you want to know, my devious plan is to get us to look into a part of the Bible that you probably forgot was even there. So many of us just kind of, first of all, lose the draw to the Old Testament, which we should never do. When we come to those little books in the back of the Old Testament, all those little prophets, we just kind of skip them. They're important. They're relevant even yet for us today. So I'm going to go quickly. Uh, You might want to just open your Bibles if you have them to the, the book of Joel. I'm not going to have all the scriptures I'm going to share on the screen. There will be a few of them. But the book of Joel... When you look at it, you're going to discover, if you study it at all, you're going to see there's very two distinct parts to it. The first part of it goes from verse 1, obviously, to the verse 27 in chapter 2. And it's talking about this terrible locust plague. And the locust thing in the Scripture in the Old Testament usually is a picture of judgment, punishment. And you'll see that it is that. And it's a judgment from the Lord, towards his people, which we'll touch on in a minute or two. And it leads his people to repentance, and God restores. That's always his goal when he's dealing with his people. Restoration is always the goal. The second half of it, starting in verse 28 of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3, deals with something that's coming in the future. Joel wrote these words approximately in 9th century B.C., And one of the things that he saw futuristically was there was going to come a day when God was going to pour out His Holy Spirit. And for those of us that know, that really took place and was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And I believe this is the day on the church calendar where it is called Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday. So we, we see that that was the first thing he saw futuristically. The second thing was what we call the Day of the Lord. Judgment. Judgment is coming. And we're going to see this reference to the day of the Lord as you go through this book. The day of the Lord is going to be a dramatic demonstration of God judging the world. Judging all who have rejected Him. And quite honestly, those that have rejected His people, according to the Scriptures. The first half of the book that I mentioned it could, have, could be looked at this way. It's God actually fighting against his own people to get them to repent. And then the second half of the book is him fighting against drawing together the nations of the world and punishing and judging them, those that reject Christ. So the locust plague plague. in chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to read a couple verses. The first one, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We know about that much about Joel. We don't know anything else about him. This is so, this is so classic God. What we can see from this is the messenger isn't that important most of the time unless his name is Jesus. The message and what he had him to do is what was important. So we know almost nothing about this guy. We're not even totally sure historically, but it looks like in the reference to some of the, the people, uh, the kings, etc., 
probably 900 B.C. is when these words came to him. And then he said these words, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons about it. And the sons the next generation. In other words, tell this message to generation after generation after generation. It's important, the message. And then he talks about these locusts. And it says, what the gnawing locust has left, it's like there's four different classifications here of locusts. He says, when the, whatever the gnawing locusts have left, the swarming locusts have eaten. And what the swarming locusts left, the creeping locusts have eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. He is painting a picture of total devastation, total destruction. There's another scripture, and he says, oh, before the locust came, it looked like the Garden of Eden. And after they had passed through, it was worse than a desolate desert. And then he goes on in verses 6 and following, describing this devastation. You can imagine plant life. It talks about fig trees dying, everything dying. There wasn't even enough grain that they could offer grain as priests in their, in their ceremonial worship. There was, there was nothing for the people. You can imagine the famine. You can imagine what it would be like to be living with this many locusts everywhere. And in verse 13, Joel then calls out to the people. I'm going to read verse 13. You'll see if you go through this, there's going to be a few familiar verses. For some of us old-timers, you see where some of the songs we used to sing, here's some of the words in some of these verses. But in verse 13, he said to the people, this is coming. It's already here. You're seeing what's taking place. He says, so gird yourself with sackcloth. Lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. From the gain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your Lord. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. God's using His prophetic voice proclaiming this warning and exhortation. It's already happening. We can get the impression that he's telling them it might come. No, it's already happening. And now he's speaking. Here's what we need to do. We need to repent. And when he gets to chapter 2, it talks about this day of the Lord that I just referenced here, the day of the Lord. It gives us a warning of a terrible day of judgment, this day of the Lord thing. It's coming And this locust horde is like just a taste of what it's going to be like. It's going to be bad. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, familiar verses, if you may have heard it, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. 
And then it, this locust horde is again described, and don't let that confuse you. Now this time it's described like it's an army. And it talks about this army and gives you a picture of a well-organized, total destructive army. And they use phrases like creeping up your, the side of your house and coming through the windows. It, this, this army is coming. It's still in reference to these locusts. But it also could make reference to the armies of the nations around them, the Assyrians, etc. Basically, he is painting a picture of this day of the Lord as a day of judgment that's coming. And it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. In verse 11, it's interesting because this army of locusts is called the army of the Lord. So sometimes you might have trouble with that. Wait, this is the Lord's army? And he is coming, destroying everything in sight. Is God's only message here through this prophet Joel one of destruction? Is that what this whole thing is about? And the answer is a resounding no. That's not what this whole thing is about. In verse 11, it ends with these words, the day of the Lord is a very great and terrible day. Who? Who can endure it? So why is God fighting against His own people like this? It's not just about destruction. Verses 12 and 14 through 14 in chapter 2 should give us the heart of the Lord. He says, Yet even now, says the Lord, and this is Joel prophesying, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and He is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repents of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and repent and leave a blessing behind Him, a cereal offering or a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord our God. As bad as it is, and as obviously bad the offense that the Lord has taken is, he's offering an opportunity to repent. And as you go through Joel, kind of like the primary message in Hosea, remember Hosea, go marry the prostitute? She's unfaithful, she's unfaithful, she's unfaithful, go and bring her back. The heart of the Lord. Here we see it in Joel in a different way. The day of the Lord is here. The day of the Lord is near. Prepare. No one's going to be able to endure it. And then yet he says, but if you repent. One of the things we'll see as we look through these Old Testament minor prophets is God truly is a very, very jealous God. He doesn't want our affections shared with something else that should be, gone, be to Him only. Well, that doesn't mean we don't like other things and doesn't mean other things aren't important to us. But what it means is God and God alone. Everything else is below that. Throughout Christianity and throughout the Old Testament, what we saw so many times, let's just look at Israel, the people of Israel. Oh, they didn't deny that there was a God, Jehovah, but then they started worshiping any of the other gods. And they brought in this god and that god. So they had this whole mixture thing going on. God says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to put up with that. Uh-uh. I'm your God. 
and the whole world is going to know that I am your God. And they're going to know that I am the one and only God. It's going to happen. Whatever it takes, and trust us, trust me, trust the Word, God's attitude is still the same. The whole world one day is going to bow its knee and recognize there's one God and is the God of the Bible. So He's, he's jealous. And we, we don't want to take this lightly because this is Old Testament. Okay? New Testament. It is made crystal clear that we as Christians that are truly Christians are called the bride of Christ. We're His bride. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to share my bride with anyone. I would be very jealous. Sometimes I was too jealous. But that's my bride. Not going to share her. And if my bride came to me and said, well, you know, I really love you. I love you, Mike, but I kind of love this guy too. And I sort of love this guy here over here too. And I, I mean, I, I, I still love you, but I, I want to share myself with others. That isn't going to cut it. And if I'm that way, I can only imagine how much more jealous for our affections is our God for his bride that he sent his son to earth to die on a cross and endure the pain and the humiliation and the suffering. We do not want to take lightly our mixed affections. Like Kay said, it doesn't mean we don't have other interests. It doesn't mean we can enjoy other things. We, can, we can't love other things. But as much as I love my bride, I better love him more. No matter what. And my bride better love him more than she loves me. We're never on the same plane. And I, I don't even want to go down a list of things. You, I'll let you do that in your own mind. But what other things do we move up to that same level? Well, I'd love to serve God. I'd love to be with fellowshipping with Christians. I'd love to go to church. I'd love to do that. But gee, I got to do this and this and this and this and this. I don't think the bridegroom is impressed when we put things at that level. When we're going to choose this or this, and God loses. Well, I'll come back, God, later. But right now, this is so important. God's going to just say, okay. I'm not going to force anything. But return to the Lord that He might be gracious and merciful. And the people, when Joel calls out to the people, blow the trumpet and declare a fast, a solemn assembly. And he goes on with all this. The people responded. The people responded. You know, we, we don't necessarily have that, that prophet blowing the horn, although we do have prophets. But what we do have is even better. Way better. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, blowing that warning horn. The Holy Spirit convicting us if we are listening at all. The Holy Spirit Warning, Mike, Mike, be careful. There's only one God and I'm it. I will not compete with your other affections. We have the Holy Spirit in us, continually wooing us, warning us, drawing us. And sometimes there will be things that we don't enjoy that will be consequences of our behavior. It may not be a bunch of locusts coming and destroying your beautiful yard. 
But there will be consequences, and the Lord will allow them because he wants to draw us back to himself, to him. Verses 25 and 20 through 27 of Joel chapter 2. I think this one will be on the screen. I hope you guys in the booth can follow where I'm rambling. I will restore you. I will restore to you the years which the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. God's ultimate aim is given to us right there. That's his ultimate aim. You'll know that I, the Lord, am your God. And there is no one else. No one else. Not God plus, just God. Joel had said that the day of the Lord was near. The day of the Lord was coming. I want to touch on something there in just a moment. He repeats this in verse 15 of chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 2, verse 11. He repeats these over and over. And it says, God repented. Now that means God changed his mind, right? God says, if my people will do these things through Joel, pray, lament, repent, I'll bless you. In other words, I'll change my mind. What I have planned... I won't release. Now, we have a hard time thinking about God that way because we know He knows everything, right? We know whether He he already knew whether people are going to respond or not. Why is it written like this? I believe it's written like this for our understanding and our benefit and for us to get a better picture of His heart. Though He's warning us. Joel sees the future extended as a two-sided future. One, salvation and blessings who will call on the name of the Lord. God says, if you'll do these things, I'm going to bless you. He says the same things to us by the Holy Spirit. Oh, confess that, repent that, turn away from that sin, and you will see the blessings of God follow. They will come. The blessings of God, the love, the joy, the peace, the prosperity, the provision, all these things. God says they will come. In Joel chapter 2, he made, in verse 28, he makes this promise that we know has been fulfilled for us. For them, it was hundreds of years in the future. He says, And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Joel sees this amazing thing that God will do because the people repented. But on the flip side, he also sees the dark picture, that there is a time of terrible divine judgment that's coming. And we see this in much greater detail in chapter 3. God fought against His own people in a sense to bring Him to salvation, but He is going to come and judge the world who has rejected Him. You know, in Joel chapter 3, when you read verses 16 to 21, it's revealed to us that this this day of the Lord is being pushed back. But it's been revealed to us at the end of this age, 
the Lord's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to come meeting at the people that are still on this earth is either a roaring lion to devour them or refuge of delights. It talks about his people will be taken to the mount. Well, he will take care of them. He will nurture them. He will feed them. Oh, but for those that have rejected him, they're going to be called to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. And God's not there to make a decision as to whether you're going to get punished or not. You're called to the valley of decision to find out how bad it's going to be. We don't want to get invited to the valley of decision ever. The valley of Jehoshaphat. That's a brief overview. I'm not going to go into chapter 3 in much detail. But we need to understand that there is a day of the Lord. And when we read in here, and you'll read it elsewhere, you'll hear that it kind of put this way. And the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. I want to just encourage you to think of it this way. That's not necessarily a chronological word. It doesn't necessarily mean the day of the Lord is near, meaning it's here tomorrow or it's coming in a week. It's coming in two weeks. For goodness sakes, we've been waiting for 2,000 years since Jesus. What does it mean when it says it's near? It means everything is in place that it could happen. God is looking at the earth and He is saying the day of the Lord is near. Evil is rampant. People are rejecting truth. day of the Lord is near. The message is going forth. People are having the opportunity. They're either going to reject or accept. The day of the Lord is near, meaning things are in a place where the curtain could call. And I think the day of the Lord is near. We could say that today. The day of the Lord is near. It's not a time frame. It's things are in preparation. Things are ready. It could happen. We need to live like that, that it could happen. I want to close with four quick points about how we can take this application because when I read things like take this and pass it on to your sons and your sons to their sons and their sons and their sons to generation after generation, it, to me that's saying this is eternal truth. This is stuff that everybody needs to hear. And the first one is this. God's purpose in history is to be seen and known as God in the eyes of the whole world. That doesn't change. He has, that is his goal. Historically, that's been the case and it will be that until he comes back. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else, period. And if, if we are God's people, if that's the case, everything we do should have this point as its target to demonstrate, to show, and to and to let it be true in our own lives that He is God. He is the Lord. And remember this. He's going to achieve it. It's going to happen. You know, uh, he, he repented. In other words, God said, I'm not going to bring that day of the Lord today, but it's coming. And it's coming. That's why we claim Scriptures like in Chronicles where it says, you know, if my people, if my people will, What? Humble themselves, seek my face, blah blah blah. He'll, he'll, he will, he will make a difference. But it's coming, it's coming. Number two, if our hearts wander from God, He will fight against us to lead us to repentance. Praise God, we're under a new covenant. We have the Holy Spirit, but He's still going to chase us down. 
He's going to give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity as the Holy Spirit draws us, woos us, to see the things in our life that are not pleasing to God, to see the things in our life that are competing for our affections for God. He wants a faithful bride. And we're that bride. He doesn't want just a small piece of our heart. He wants all of our heart. Number three, rend your hearts, not your garments. Now that loses its emphasis in our culture today. But in that day when when they were to grieve or repent, you know, they'll rend their garments, tear their clothing. God says to us, I'm not interested in all that outward appearance stuff. You can put on a sad face if you want. You can go ahead and tear your garments if you want. You can weep and bawl and cry all you want. But I'm not even watching if I don't see that's where your heart is. Your heart is what's important. He's telling the people, rend your heart, not your outer garments. I am not impressed by those things. He used words like awake, lament, be ashamed, wail, fast, cry to the Lord, seek His mercy from the heart. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Thank goodness. That's Him. and He hasn't changed. And last but not least, pray and seek God for that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we need. Now we know because uh, Peter quoted Joel on the day of Pentecost. The people said, look at these people. I mean, we could say, look what happened here today. Who was that drunk making those noises that nobody could understand? Joel, Peter said, no, no, no. Remember what Joel said? There will come a day. And it came on the day of Pentecost when my spirit's going to fall on people and they're going to prophesy. They're going to speak in tongues. There's going to be interpretation of tongues. There's going to be words of wisdom. There's going to be all these things. It's, we know it came, but we need more. We need a greater outpouring of His Spirit. And when I say that, I want to make sure you know that it's not Him holding the waters back. We build the barriers in our lives. We want to see the Holy Spirit released in more powerful ways in our lives and in our church and our ministries. Are we truly in love with the Lord above all else? Are we truly surrendered to Him in every area of our life? Are we truly spending time in relationship with Him, reading His Word, praying, just meditating on who He is? Pre-service prayer, Gloria shared something about just a picture that came to her mind during worship, during the funeral. Just meditating on things like that. Oh my gosh. You can get almost... You can almost run into writing your own scripture, but (laughs) it's amazing when you meditate on the Word of God, the things that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us. Show us. Are we doing those things to allow the Holy Spirit to move in us and through us the way that He desires to? I haven't seen all the old men prophesying and having dreams, the young men prophesying and having dreams, the ladies, the gals. It's not happening yet. Is there more for us? Or is it over with? Is it done? No, it's not over with and done. We need that. 
And one of the main reasons we see in the book of Acts that Jesus told the disciples to go and sit in Jerusalem and just wait. They went there and waited for 40 days. But you know, they didn't just sit and twiddle their thumbs. They sat and prayed, meditated, sought the Lord. And the Holy Spirit came. And why did He, what did, why did he tell them to wait? Wait till the power comes upon you to go into all the world as my evangelists. We can do so much better evangelizing when it's the Holy Spirit in us driving us, motivating us, and giving us the words to speak. We need these things. I believe these things are eternal truths from an old prophet from 9th century B.C. for us today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank You so much. I thank You, God, that we can be a part of what You're doing in the earth today. You've called us as Your church. You've declared us to be Your army going forward. Not like locusts destroying, but an army gaining land for the kingdom of God through the power of the gospel, demonstrating your love to people, living a life empowered by the Holy Spirit that represents Jesus to a lost and dying world. God, we pray that you would continue, Holy Spirit, to to reveal those things in us, show us those things in us that that are distractions, but even more so, show us those things in us that are competing for our affection. God, we, 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 we need you. We love you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we want to surrender and submit to you in every way. Give us the grace. Give us the grace that's needed to live out the call and purpose you have in our lives. Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that we would truly go walking as your ambassadors, protected by you and your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear when those divine moments come where we can share things with people and demonstrate the love of Jesus. Father, we pray all these things that you'd receive all the glory and all the honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.